Driven mofos, I'm guessing that you found out about this podcast because someone shared it with you, posted it on their Insta stories, tweeted it, or something like that. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and getting a heap of value from it, just like those who shared it with you. As you know, I don't run any paid ads or sponsorship on this podcast, as it's my goal to get good information out to the world for free. The only thing that I'd ask from you is that you continue to pay it forward by sharing this episode and letting others know about what we do in this podcast so that we can keep growing this amazing community of driven mofos. So please keep the good karma rolling and share this episode with someone or just share it on your socials. Anxiety can really be one of those things that hold you back, stop you from doing what you want, and can really control your life. Welcome to The Underestimated Entrepreneur, where we talk about how to get the best out of yourself and how to build a life that you can't wait to get out of bed and live each day. This podcast is my attempt at documenting my journey, sharing my insights and what I've learned from being the private mindset and mental performance coach to some of the country's top athletes, rich listers, entrepreneurs, and running events for tens of thousands of people on how to better themselves and those around them. This is for those driven to achieve more in life, but are often underestimated by those around them. This podcast is my attempt at helping you prove your doubters wrong. Please enjoy. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about anxiety and some of the reasons what the causes are, what the triggers are, and then how to overcome them. You won't find a lot of this stuff most places. A lot of the time, these patterns are reinforced. But I'm going to give you my tips and tools based on the people that I've worked with and some of the things that have massively helped them. Driven Mofos, welcome back to another episode of The Underestimated Entrepreneur. For those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Michael Mojo, founder of Mojo Human Performance Institute and also Mojo Business Multiplier. The reason why I do these episodes is that most people waste their life and I just don't want you to be one of them. And really, the reason why I do everything is I just want to help people perform better. I don't like saving people with a victim mentality. I don't like any of that stuff. I like helping people that are driven, want to achieve more, want to get the best out of themselves and have a burning desire to want to be better in life. And it doesn't matter whether they've hit rock bottom. It doesn't matter whether they're at the top of the game. I just love helping people that actually want to get out there and want to do better in life. So let's talk about anxiety and some of the people that I've worked with and some of the results that we've gotten. Now, some of this stuff is more clinical from having worked with people. It's not something that you'll go and find scientific literature about, scientific data about. And in fact, I think most of the data on mental health is a bit inaccurate because it tends to reinforce a lot of the victim type mentality. And personally, from what I've found, and this is just my personal experience from working with tens of thousands of people, some of them are suicidal, some of them have had massive amounts of depression, some of them have been going for therapy for 20 years, some of them have been having anxiety attacks, panic attacks, all of those types of things. But these are people that want to perform better, want to do more. Some of them are very high achieving individuals. So I want to give some of what I have found. And this is from my clinical experience. Now, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a medical doctor. So I am a coach that works and helps people perform better. That's what I do. So I don't want anyone to sit there and go, well, you're not a psychologist. You don't know shit because my results speak for themselves. And I think the people that listen to this would rather get results than have someone who gives scientific literature or data based on a small group of people that are put in a clinical research setting or they're working with a therapist who has all their own trauma and all their fucking shit that they're dealing with that they haven't dealt with and then try to help other people. And we all know people who work in the mental health space who aren't really that mentally healthy. So these are my experiences. So take it as you will. But I think this stuff massively helps people when I point all this stuff out. So let's get into it. So first of all, it's important to understand what anxiety is. Now, what I do when I work with human behavior, I try and break things down into the simplest, most usable format. 
It's all great to have all this data and all this research, but if you can't use it in a therapeutic setting or in a way where you're able to work with people, it's very, very hard. It's pointless almost. And so there are a lot of good theories out there and people just say, well, you know, it's because there's a chemical imbalance. Well, that's great, but what caused the chemical imbalance? There's gotta be a cause if there's an effect. Now, is it genetic? Were they born with it? That's really, really tough to try and understand unless you're gonna do genetic testing. And then from there, you have to find out whether it's an epigenetic problem or whether it's a genetic problem. Genetic normally means you're born with it. So let's say you're born with a lost limb. So you're born with one arm. That's probably a genetic defect, right? So that's a genetic problem. When you are okay for a long period of time and then you start to notice changes, most of the time that's an epigenetic effect, which means our thought processes and our mental processes and our environment have made changes to the genome. Okay, so our gene is adapting in its most simplest form. So that's epigenetics. Most people's health issues and health crisis that they have or mental health issues, when they're termed as being genetic, most of the time they're not, they're epigenetic which means that the person's been fine for a really long period of time and then all of a sudden these things start to display themselves. This is the reason why some people can get cancer later on in their life. Then they go and do genetic testing and they say, well, it's because it's genetic. It's not really genetic, it's epigenetic. And so they weren't born with a cancer, it's just that it's developed over time based on environmental factors. So based on the person's thinking, consistent stress levels, emotional responses, the food that they eat, their toxicity within their environment, and what happens is that they've got a predisposition, which means that they're predisposed. Now, it's like race car drivers, right? Race car drivers are predisposed to crashing because if you're pushing the limits, you're probably eventually going to crash at some point. So we know that race car drivers are predisposed to crashing because they're in that environment. If you're in an environment where there's a lot of people around and a lot of cars, you're probably predisposed to crashing. That doesn't mean you are going to crash. It just means that there's a greater likelihood of crashing. Now, if you're a shit driver, it's going to increase that. So if you treat your body like shit and you treat your mind like shit, that predisposition is going to be increased and enhanced. So the probability is going to increase. So this is important to understand. And these are the debates that I have with the medical industry and psychologists and so on. Some psychologists are very open and they're very intelligent and they're very smart and they think through things well and they do a lot of their own inner work. There are a lot of people out there who get into psychology and get into mental health because they're mentally fucked up and because they haven't been able to save themselves they don't want other people to go through what they've gone through, so then they start trying to save everybody else. But when you do that, you haven't resolved your own issues, so you're not going to help other people resolve theirs. And then you're going to create these blocks for them because you're still blocked. So when I used to train coaches, I would say to them, do your own work. You'll only lead clients to where you're at. If you've got these mental blocks, your clients will have mental blocks. If you're an obese personal trainer, how do you help people go through their mental and emotional shit? when they're losing weight, when you can't do it. I spend hours every week just chipping away and chipping away and chipping away and chipping away. And if you look at me 10 years ago to who I am now, completely different person. If you go back 10 years prior to that, completely different person. So that's how you start to notice that things are changing for the better. Most people's lives, they go downhill as they age, not uphill. If you're doing the right things, you're getting better as you age because you're getting smarter. Now that's not always the case you know. with aging. Aging's gonna creep up on you in most cases. But if you're being more intelligent, you should be less stressed, you should be more calm, you should be able to make money easier, you should be smarter with your diet, smarter with the people that you hang around. But for most people, that's not the case. They just get grumpy and old and more frustrated. So what does this have to do with anxiety? Well, let's get into it. What I've found to be a consistent pattern is that anxiety is a fear response. If we go back to one of the foundations of human psychology, it is that humans have to survive. 
and we're either in survival mode or we're thriving. Now, when we're thriving, everything's working well. Now, you might have an area in your life where you're thriving and you might have another area in your life where you're surviving. Those two things are going to clash. So it's important to really identify, are we in survival mode or are we in thrive mode? Thrive mode is we're inspired, high energy, we're eating well, we're looking after ourselves, we're putting ourselves in optimum environment. We're getting good results in our life, even though we might be working hard or working effectively. The momentum is in your favor, it's on your side. But if we look at the other side, the other side is we're frustrated, we're more burnt out, we're more tired, our energy's low. Mentally, we tend to have more negative thoughts or more disempowering thoughts. We start to doubt ourselves. We start to become more worried. We're more reactive. That's some of the patterns that we see when we're in fear. So with fear, we ask, okay, what is fear? So fear is a survival response. So when we're afraid, we have a survival response. What does that survival response look like biologically? So biologically, blood flows from the most evolved part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex down into the limbic or the emotional system. So when we're in survival mode, we tend to have more emotional volatility, more emotional reactivity. We start to play safe. We stop thinking about our mission. We stop living our values because we're just trying to survive. What does survival look like? It looks like roof over our head, which can be money and finances, career. Then the next step is food and sustenance. So what does that look like? Diet. If you start eating a shitty diet, that can throw you into a fear response because your body's now in survival mode. And then third is sex and procreation. So when we look at those three factors, we go, okay, how are we going financially? Whoop, finances are a bit shit. Okay, we might be having a fear response because we don't know how to manage our money. Number two, do we know how to manage our diet? No, we don't. Okay, more of a fear response. So we're starting to stack these disadvantageous patterns to push us more into a fear response. So we're probably gonna be more reactive, more volatile. And that's why if you're struggling with your finances and you're eating shitty food, you're probably gonna be more mentally and emotionally volatile. Okay, you're gonna have more of these patterns occur. And then third and finally, what's my relationships like? What's my intimate relationship like? Relationships with family, friends, my inner circle, and then society as a whole. How does that affect me? Where do I fit into society there? Now, if those three things aren't good, then you're probably going to be highly volatile, emotionally reactive. You're probably going to either be in flight response, which is you're going to want to run away from problems and just shut down. And so this is where you see people binge watching TV and not dealing with their problems. They get caught up in drama or other people's drama. Why? Because they're trying to escape. Then you go to the next one, which is freeze. And that's where people don't want to do anything. I see this all the time where someone says to me, I want to get all these results. I want to change my life. And I go, here's the decision that you need to make. Either come and work with me or go work with someone else. Either come to my Thrive Time event or come to one of my events and let's get you out of these patterns. And they go, oh, I need to think about it. You've been fucking thinking about it for two years. For two years, nothing's changed. You've had these stress responses. Nothing's changing. What do you need to think about? Oh, I just got to make sure it's right. Well, what we know is it's what you're doing now is not working. So let's try something different, right? It's not that hard to figure out. But it's just that naturally people have a freeze response. In nature, when a bear comes running towards you and you freeze, you look more like a tree. We know that things in nature that move, we're more aware of. That's why sometimes you can put your keys down right in front of you. And then you go, where are my keys? I can't find them. And someone goes there right here and you go, oh shit, I didn't see them there. Why? Because they're not moving. If your keys for your car ran across your desk, you'd go, oh shit, there it is. So things that don't move tend to hide better in nature. So we've got the flight response, run away, freeze, stop and don't do anything. And then the final response is fight response. So this is where we get aggression, frustration. We become more mentally and emotionally reactive. We arc up. 
So that's the fight response. And so if you look at most people, they live in one of those three responses. If not, they jump around between all three or maybe two of them are predominant. Why? Because they're in a survival response. Now, what does this have to do with anxiety? Anxiety is an emotional response. Now, if we look at what emotional responses are, they're a survival mechanism. So when we're intelligent, like if you speak to someone with depression and you speak to them logically, they go, yeah, I know logically it doesn't make sense. So it's because that part of the brain, the logical part of the brain, isn't governing their actions, behaviors, and thoughts. It's their emotional states that are governing their actions, thoughts, and responses. So even though logically it makes sense, they just can't seem to get that logical part of the brain to fire up because they're in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you're going to flight, fight, or freeze. You're going to run away, freeze, and not do anything, or you're going to get aggressive and angry and frustrated, and you're going to use your emotions to fight and become reactive. And this is how most people operate. If you're a business owner and you're wanting to grow your business, please make sure you head to Facebook and search for my No BS Business Hacks Facebook group. It's totally free and I share tips, tools, templates, and live trainings on all things sales, marketing, leadership, management, systemization, and more, as well as how to help you to perform at your best by optimizing your mindset as the business owner. So if you're a business owner, head across to Facebook via the link in the description of this podcast and join my free No BS Business Hacks Facebook group. When we're talking about anxiety, the anxiety response is essentially a fear-based response, and it's a survival response. So now, what does that mean? That means that we need to go and find the triggers for that survival response. And most of the time is it's that someone's put themselves into a circumstance at some point in time where it's caused a reaction. So I'm going to give a really good example here of this. Let's say you're driving along in the car, and all of a sudden, this car in front of you goes to pull out of the intersection and a car comes through the intersection and T-bones the car. So it smashes into the other car. You see it all happening in front of your eyes in slow motion. Then you get out the car, you run across the road and there's a person with blood running down their face and you know they, you see them bent over the steering wheel and you open up the car door and you pull them back and they're sort of dazed and you think, shit, this is really, really bad. And then the cops and the ambulance are there and everyone's going, oh, well, what's happened? What's happened? And you see other people starting to freak out because people get concerned and they get worried and humans naturally dramatize things. So these people who get there late, they start dramatizing, oh, that's so bad, it's so horrific. And you're like, oh shit, it's so bad. And so you start to think about how bad this circumstance was. Now, by the way, in a moment, you normally don't have a big fear response or a negative response. Why? Because your body cranks up adrenaline and adrenaline numbs us. So anytime I've worked with someone with things like PTSD, the circumstance that they think causes the PTSD normally isn't the PTSD. It's normally after the experience in how they try to cope with what just happened. Okay, and I can get into this in another episode. But most of the time when something bad really happens, we actually numb ourselves through adrenaline. And so we don't actually have an emotional response in the moment. We have it after when we're trying to analyze and figure out what's going on. So this person then, calms down and all of a sudden the adrenaline wears off and they start to think about it and they see the car pull out into the intersection and bang, they hear the crash. And so it starts to trigger this anxiety, this hyper adrenaline response. And it makes them nervous, it makes them fidgety and they drop into that flight or fight mode. And so now when they go to get in a car, their brain has neuro associated. So it's not the car that's the problem, is it's the car pulled down in the intersection, a car ran a yellow light and bang, they clipped. So you've got one driver who moved out into the intersection, not being aware that the other driver was coming through. So poor driving skills. Other car runs the red light, running late for work. They weren't aware that the car was moving out into the intersection. So you've got two people that are unaware. 
you've got a certain circumstance where just wrong place, wrong time, two drivers that are unaware, one's running late for work, one's not looking at the intersection in the other car, they're thinking about other shit and bang. That's the real circumstance of what happened. But now you start to think, uh oh, driving is dangerous because you can have these car accidents and you might end up dying, you might end up in a situation like that and that is bad. So now your brain has linked driving to the car accident. And like I said, it's not driving, is it's just in that moment, if we look at the moment, you've got two unaware drivers not being aware of other road users, one running late for work, one being distracted. And because of that circumstance, when everything happens like that, bang, now you've got an accident. It's not driving, okay? But now your brain has started to generalize and associate driving with a car accident. So you go to get in the car and your brain starts flashing up that image again. And you go, oh shit. And so now you're starting to sit in the car and you start having a bit of a fear response. Your breathing becomes shallow and you go, oh, oh, what is this? And your brain tries to search for what that experience is. Now you've heard of this term before called a panic attack. And you go, sounds like I'm having a panic attack because that's what it feels like. It feels like I'm panicking and I'm having this attack. So now your brain starts to associate driving with the car accident of two people being completely unaware and not looking at other road users being a bit inconsiderate. And your brain has linked that with the generalized notion of driving. And now you're starting to have these feelings of a stress response, a flight, fight, and freeze response where you've got high adrenaline and your brain's trying to figure out what that means. But you've heard the term anxiety attack before. So you start to attach this label of an anxiety attack onto that feeling. And so now you're creating these neuro associations. You're associating stuff with something else. And so you sit there in the car, you start panicking, you get out of the car, you go for a walk and the panic goes away and you go, oh shit, okay, well, what's going on? Then your partner gets home from work and you tell them, I got into the car today, I started having this panic attack. Your partner goes, wow, that sounds really bad. Okay, well, maybe you need just need to calm down. You know, the circumstance is recent, but you start thinking, shit, I wonder what happens next time I get in the car. Am I going to have a panic attack? So you start future pacing what might happen when you get in the car. And every time you even think about getting in the car now, you start having a panic attack. So then you go to the, the doctor or you go to the psychologist and you get in there and you talk about this experience and they go, okay, it sounds like you're having a panic attack. It's this anxiety response you have. So now you get labeled as having an anxiety attack, which is, was originally a panic attack, which then was you getting in the car, which then was you being in the car watching a car accident from two people that were completely unaware when they were driving. But your brain now has associated all these responses together with the initial car accident. And so now someone says, do you want to go for a drive? And you're like, <sighs> you start panicking because you're like, oh, oh, is the panic attack going to happen again? Am I going to get triggered? And so now you're not even panicking about getting in the car. You're panicking about the potential of having a panic attack when you get in the car. And so now you might be getting medicated. Okay, so you might have to have some sort of an anxiety agent. That anxiety agent is essentially a numbing effect for your emotional responses. So you're essentially numbing your emotions. Most antidepressants, any anxiety medication is just a numbing agent. That's all that it is. It'll make you numb. It's not a painkiller, but it's a numbing agent. It makes you more numb. So what will happen now is your ability to experience the pleasurable emotions will be dulled, but your experience of the low emotions will also be dulled. So you just have to be aware of these patterns that are happening that are triggers. So now the question is, how do we deal with this? What you need to do is you need to go back in to those original moments and you need someone who is really highly skilled, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach, and you go back into those the original initial moments 
and you look at the exact circumstances of what's going on and you see the balance in what's happening and you really analyze it from a logical perspective. And what you need to do is stack all the benefits to the disadvantages and the disadvantages to the benefits until it neutralizes. And then you'll just realize that there was just a car accident. You learn a whole bunch of lessons from it. So it might've made you more aware when you're driving. You might've become a better driver. You might not get in the car now with people that are irresponsible when they're driving or distracted. So for me personally, I've been in cars before I grew up around racing. So I don't like being in cars when people are distracted. If you're driving and you're on your phone, you're not watching the road, I get really anxious. Why? Because I've seen how easy things can go wrong. In fact, I rolled a car. It was two weeks after I got my P plates and I grew up racing cars with the Australian Junior Rally Champion. So I knew how to race cars and I was quite good at it. And so when I was young, I was just driving. There was a T-junction, it was a dirt road, came into it, did all the right things and I was sort of rally driving. I was highly competent, highly skilled, did this perfect slide into the corner, everything like that for anyone who knows rally racing. Did this perfect slide, came out of the corner, car flipped. How did it happen? Because a truck had got bogged a few days beforehand, left some huge ruts in the middle of the road, and my back tires hit the road and went into the rut and it flipped the car over. Now, could have I expected that? Not really. It was just a shitty situation. But that's what I realized about driving cars on the road, is that you don't know what is around the next corner. You don't know what the situation is. You might be a highly competent driver, but there can be other shit drivers. You might be a competent driver, but there can be distracted drivers. That's why I don't get in the car. Or I say to people, look, can you put down your phone? Fucking drive the car. Because I know how quick shit can go wrong in a car, especially when you're driving at speed. I learned that from having a car accident. So when you go back and you analyze that situation, you can go back in there and see all the benefits and you go, wow, okay, now I'm more safe when I'm driving. I'm more effective. I realize how things can go wrong. It's made me want to do a driver's safety course where now I learn how to slide a car and stuff like that. And so now you become a more competent driver. You don't get into the car with people that are unaware. You won't get into the car with people that are drunk or alcohol affected. So you become more competent. And when you look at it like that, you go, shit, there's so many benefits to that situation. And no one really died in that moment anyway. So it's probably not that bad. Yeah, there was a bit of a repair cost. But when you go back through and you see all the benefits of it and you neutralize it, you actually be neutral about it. You don't have an emotional response. And this is how I deal with what people label as trauma. There's all this training out there these days where everyone's talking about trauma, trauma, trauma. The more you talk about your trauma, the more you bring up visuals inside your own mind about trauma and the more you keep neuroassociating. And so what you find is that traumatized people just talk about trauma all the time. And they talk about their childhood. They talk about all these reasons to be traumatized. Then they have emotional reactions. They get reactive when they see other people going through similar circumstances. And it drives their whole entire life. If that's what you want to do and that's how you get your attention and that's how you, you, know, you feel valid and validated, so be it. I just don't think it's a great way of living. Your past is your past. You learn from those things and you move forward. But how do we do that? How do we do it in a way where we let go of that shit? We have to neutralize it. It's sort of like forgiveness where people say, I forgive that person. You'll forgive them providing you set rules and boundaries and providing that person doesn't cross it again. Once that person crosses the boundaries, you never really forgave them because you'll bring back up the shit that they did in the past. That's because you never really neutralized it. So anytime you hold on to any emotional shit with a charge, you'll bring it back up at some point in the future. It will pop back up because it's telling you you haven't worked through it properly. So I like to go back in. I like to neutralize these patterns. When you go and neutralize them, you have no emotional reaction. That's why I can talk about my best friend's three-year-old niece being killed in a car accident and I have no emotional response to it. Why? Because I neutralize the situation. There's both benefits and there's drawbacks. There's both good and bad. And so I see both sides. It's just a situation that happened and it allowed me 
to have the life that I have now. If it wasn't for that situation, I might not be where I am today. I don't know. So my point is you've got to go back and neutralize it. This is something that most people never talk about in therapies or any sort of emotional work or mental work. You need to understand how to use charges to create drive, but also how to neutralize shit from your past. If not, the past will keep coming back up in your future in different circumstances. So that's how I deal with anxiety responses. There's a little bit more to it. There's an art to it, just like everything. You know, you can teach someone how to make pottery, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be good at making pottery. You have to not only understand how to do the thing, you actually have to have the mindset to be good at the art. And there are some people out there who are great coaches and great therapists and great psychologists, but most people just, they might have the knowledge, but they just don't have the skill set. They just don't have the art. They're not that good at it. And I've worked with plenty of people in those fields that are really fucking bad. And it's unfortunate, but it's the same as any industry. There are doctors out there who are phenomenal. You know, we have a lot of them come to our courses and they are phenomenal doctors. They care about people. They understand the art and they're really, really gifted. And then you get a whole bunch of other people that have learned a lot of stuff. They're really smart people, but they're just doing a job and they don't really care. They just cruising through the motions and it's just work to them. They just get paid a paycheck at the end of the week. I think that's 80% of society. So go and find 20%ers. If you want to deal with any of these patterns, go find the 20% of any industry, pay them well and get the knowledge so that you can move forward and you can achieve the things that you want. If you hang out with 20%ers, you'll be a 20%er, which means 20% at the top of their game. If you're an 80%er, you'll probably be average and mediocre at most things because that's how most people operate. You know, 20% of the world's doctors are amazing. 80% are just doing a job. 20% of psychologists are amazing. 80% are just doing a job. 20% of coaches and mental health practitioners are amazing. And then 80% are just doing the job. If you pay people to just do a job, then you're probably just going to get them doing their job. Okay. Anyway, I hope this helps. I hope it gives a bit of an explanation around anxiety from a different perspective. It is a fear response. It normally has a whole bunch of neuro associations where your brain associates other things with the original incident. And then after a while, you just have all these triggers. And for some people, they say like, I get social anxiety and they have all these triggers. And that trigger might be because they had an initial response. The person was wearing blue jeans. After a while, blue jeans triggers their anxiety. Then someone has blue jeans and a white shirt. And then after a while, a white shirt and triggers their anxiety because their brain has linked a white shirt with blue jeans and then blue jeans to the original incident. And they don't even realize that now they just have all these triggers that just set them off. Okay, and you've got to be able to work through that as a practitioner or a therapist or a coach or whatever you are. So I hope that helps. Take care, Driven Mofos. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you think this episode is going to resonate with anyone, please feel free to share it with your friends, with your family. I hope it just gives a different perspective. And again, this is from my experience having worked with tens of thousands of people and coaching some of the most successful people on the planet. This isn't something that you'll go and find in a university textbook. I guarantee there's probably some clinical research out there, but I know having worked with a lot of people who have had these issues, who have been doing therapy for years and years and years, that this isn't common knowledge in the industry. Anyway, Driven Mofos, have a great day. I look forward to joining me back here once again for another episode of The Underestimated Entrepreneur. Take care and I'll see you next time.